In the trailer of this podcast, I make a statement that the U.S. attorney, when they bring a case, win 95% of those cases. And I ask again, who in life wins 95% of the time? The odds as a defendant against the United States of America are impossible. And the few people who win every year at trial, it's like winning the lottery. When you go to trial against the United States government, the odds are insurmountable because the amount of work and time and money that goes into defending yourself. Let me give you a concrete example that relates to Jimmy. When Jimmy finally went to trial, it was after the government was investigating him for more than five years. So what that means is the government hands over to your defense attorney what is called discovery in the case. This discovery is all the investigative work product. The amount of sheer data is scary. They hand over all the interviews that were done, all the wiretaps, all the video, and to go further, withhold some information. And if you're not smart enough to catch it, so what? They don't care. I've seen many times in open court where a federal prosecutor will withhold 5,000, 10,000 pages of discovery until the night before trial. And guess what? They get away with it because their power is unchecked. They are the United States Justice Department. Who's going to say anything? It's David versus Goliath at a federal trial. And it happens to everyone, not just Jimmy. When Khalil made the decision to fax the letter, to do this sort of elaborate scheme of stealing money and, and putting it on you, what did you think was the reason behind it? Was it because he felt he was going to get caught and he wanted to, not only to put some money away, but wanted a way out? What was your interpretation of why he was doing it? That's the first question. And then the second question I think we have to address, because I think it's going to come up, is with the government and this whole BlackBerry thing, you know, in the encrypted BlackBerry. Let's call it from a federal prison. Whether they had messages from it or, or not. So just, just talk to those two things. I think I think what Khalil, Khalil believed was that because they were on his trail, um, and he probably felt that they got on his trail because of me, that... Uh, if he gave them a big score and he could spill money at the same time, it will have them not look at him and they would look at me and would pretty much leave him alone. And whatever crimes that he or that they thought he committed, that it would be way lesser if they gave him if he gave them some evidence against me. Because when he sent the fax letter over the he didn't think he was going to get caught as far as they wouldn't have known that he's the one that facts the, the thing. Even if he had got arrested with me, all the arrows would have been pointed towards me because here go an anonymous, anonymous person sent a letter and they end up finding money. So I think in his scheme of things, it was in twofold. One, was to get it off of him, and number two, to lessen his role in whatever was coming down on that whole situation. And I think those were the two two reasons why he did what he did.
The other thing was that the Blackberry, as far as with me and Khalil, when I saw that the fence was all over, one of the things that I did implement was that I did not want to talk to nobody on no phone. And if they wanted to talk to me, they would have to talk to me through my encrypted Blackberry. Now, encrypted Blackberry isn't out of the norm nowadays. I used to always have an encrypted Blackberry for me and all of my clients only because of the stuff that we're talking about as far as money, as far as locations, and X, Y, Z. When I um, told Khalil about the encrypted Blackberries, which I told them they should, probably should get, he went ahead and he went and got an encrypted Blackberry. But they, there's no, there, they were nothing between me and Khalil with Blackberries. However, they were some stuff between me and Winston Harris on encrypted Blackberries. I think the other thing that I want to clarify, under under the the charge that you were charged with, they, they basically call that the Kingpin statue, right? Can you explain what that is? Yes. And, and, uh-huh. And, because I think we need to, for people to understand what you were charged with, what that charge means. I think I also want to understand if, if you're charged with the kingpin statue, what does that mean that they're, that they're trying to prove how much drugs that you technically moved or, or, or not? So, so talk to me about that. Cause I think that's important when it comes down to, the sentences you got, the charges that were that were put against you. Uh, if you could talk about that for a little while, I think it would help explain why um, you know the title of this is unjust justice. By the by the time this financial case turned into a drug case, they charged me with what's called um, the statute is called eight forty eight, um, which is the kingpin statue, which is the leader statue. That's why it's called the Kingpin statue. Now, under 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 848, it's 18 U.S.C. No matter of fact, no, it's, it's 21 U.S.C. United States Code 848. Um, under that code, there's two Kingpin statues. There's one statue that think that you made $10 million a year. And then there's a lesser kingpin status where if they don't have no amount on it, however, um, you have to only um, been directing five people or more in, in leadership role. So what we call it in here, we call it the super CCE which is the continuing criminal enterprise in the lesser CCE. What the government did was that they charged me with um, 848, the, the super charge of continuing criminal enterprise. Now, both of them carry the life sentence. However, the lesser CCE, which is the lesser 848, the minimum on that is 20 years. So you could get 20 years to life on that on that particular statute. The one they charged me with was a mandatory life sentence that I had to get um, 
life if I was found guilty on that charge. And what they had to prove was that I was the leader, not only the leader, that I was the principal leader. And, and that's the difference between the 848 of the lesser, because you don't have to be the principal leader. It could, you, it could be three, four leaders in a, a so-called organization, but your minimum is 20 years. With my charge, you have to be the principal leader, organizer, or manager of five people or more. And you have to make $10 million a year. And you have to sell 100 kilos. They have to prove that you sold 100 kilos. So they, those are the three elements they had to prove against me at trial for them to give me the mandatory life. So strangely, when it came down to um, Judge Gleason giving the charge for the super CCE or 848, or the lesser CCE, he gave them the charge of the lesser CCE where you don't have to be the principal. You know, in law, it all comes down to the, to the words. And, and when they say you must do so-and-so or there has to be X, Y, Z, that's what counts them. So it, it may seem simple that the word principal must be in there, that I must be the principal, but it's a big factor. That was what could have gave me 20 years or it could have gave me a life sentence. So when he was charging the jury and giving them the instruction, they had a sidebar. And during that sidebar, um, the, the prosecutor tells them, hey, you have to include that he was the principal administrator leader and manager of five people or more. He blatantly says, there's no way they're going to find him guilty as the principal. I'm not saying that. I'm going to say that he was the manager and um, the leader and administrator of five people or more. Um, however, when he sentenced me, he said, my hands are tied and I'm giving you life because I have to give you life on the CCE, which wasn't the case. The other drug charges that I was um, charged for were um, what's called, it's called, uh, it's 21 USC 841, which is conspiracy to distribute and possess drugs of five kilo or more. Now, that charge carries 10 years to life. So, in that instance, I ended up getting, uh, he gave me life. I had seven counts. One of them was CCE. Um, the rest was conspiracy to distribute cocaine of five keys or more, which all of them, uh, mandatory, not mandatory, but maximum was life. And he gave me seven life sentences for all of the counts on a drug charge. By law, he could do it. He maxed me out on every charge that I would, every count the prosecutor brought against me. Sentencing in the federal criminal system is very scary, as the time you face for charges is astronomical and is really based on sentencing guidelines 
that is roughly based on an actual physical scorecard. It's a point system that determines how many months you spend in jail, or in Jimmy's case, how many life sentences. If you are like Jimmy and had previous felony charges, then you receive even more time. In America in 2022, a hot topic is prison reform and the idea that we incarcerate too many people. But for argument purposes, let's talk about nonviolent drug offenses. Do you feel if someone deals cocaine, they should spend half their life in jail? Do you really feel that way? Even though the Mexican cartels transport and distribute billions of dollars of drugs every week into the United States, there's a thirst for drugs in America. And the war on drugs year in and year out just fails. So what do we do? The definition of insanity. We just continue to put more and more low-level drug dealers behind prison bars. Now, I'm not some crazy left-wing extremist who doesn't recognize that there are some very bad criminals out there. I've seen that firsthand. But it just seems in the war on drugs and mass incarceration, we can't figure out nuanced and practical solutions that are not steeped in political decisions, but decisions based around common sense and humanity. I mean, that, that just seems on the, on the surface a little excessive. And I know we can't speak for, for the judge and, and, and that, but why do you think it was so excessive? Well, in the federal system, any time a person goes to trial, they punish you for that. They punish you when you exercise your Sixth Amendment right, your right to a trial by jury. Um, they, they punish you. And, 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 and pretty much you have, you have a judge that's an ex-prosecutor who want to be tough on crime. Um, and he punished me for exercising my right to go to trial. It's, a, it's, it's excessive. Nobody was killed in any of this so-called drug transaction that everybody blamed me for. But, you know, in the, in the federal justice system, you go to trial, you lose, they're going to max you out. man. They're going to give you whatever they can give you. And that's what he did. Um, I had seven counts of drugs, one being CCE. And the rest being conspiracy to distribute drugs, uh, cocaine, five kilo, 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 kilograms or more. And he gave me life for every single count. 20 years for money laundering, 10 years for firearm. Every single count that I had, he gave me the max for. So if a gun, because somebody said that I had a gun, even though they didn't catch me with a gun, what he did was, if the max was 10 years on that gun, he gave me 10 years. If the max was 20 years on money laundering, he gave me 20 years for money laundering. So in actuality, I ended up with seven licenses. He gave me seven licenses for drugs. Gave me 20 years for money laundering. He gave me 10 years for guns. He gave me 10 years for obstruction of justice, for 
giving Khalil $10,000 toward Henry Butler's lawyer. And I think that's it. Now, yeah, that's what he, in, that's what he, in the case that the government presented, I would assume they had to make a connection between Khalil and Henry Butler, or they didn't make that connection. Did that connection exist in real life? Or was that a construct of them putting another piece of the puzzle to present to the jury, but it, it wasn't really true? What can you explain that? Were they work? They they had worked together. They um what they they came up. I don't know. I don't know who came up with it, but at trial, um, Khalil said he didn't really know Henry Butler. That the only time he met Henry Butler was through me, which was a lie. And when you're saying it was a lie, what was the truth? The truth was he met Henry Butler and was working. Um, individually with Henry Butler, that, that was the real truth. If Henry Butler came to New York, I think he came one time. I did meet up with him, and I think I was with Khalil. This call is from a federal prison. But again, they knew each other. So it wasn't like I gave the introduction. And I think it, at that meeting is when I learned that Henry Butler knew Muhammad Stewart. Uh, uh, that knew Muhammad Stewart. So, uh, before that, I didn't even know. And for me to be a leader of some organization, I would have to know pretty much everything. At least I would, I would, I would want to know. Now, if you ask me anything that happened at the Czar Entertainment while I, while I owned the place, I would be able to tell you. Unless somebody was sneaking behind my back and doing something. But I didn't know any of the details of what was going on in any drug organization that these guys loosely was doing together. I don't even think that they were all together where they would be, you know, um, giving, you know, money to each other. I, I think it, it was a, a multiple of guys that hustled, that did their own things at time, and sometimes they did it together. It wasn't as the government painted it out to be to where I was the head of some organization and nobody made a move unless they got a order from Jimmy Roseman. And talk about uh, Muhammad Stewart now, the role that he played and how he fit into the story. Can, can you talk about that? Let me just finish with 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 Winston because it's just okay, one yeah. last piece. Because yeah. the only one kilo that they got from me was because of Winston, and so that's why I was giving you the backstory that the last time I see Winston is after I show him the Khalil Abdullah stuff. Khalil obviously tells them about Winston and tells them how close me and Winston is. And what, what I noticed that the government was doing in hindsight was that everybody who they felt was close to me, they would go after. And I believe Khalil had knew that Winston was a deportee and they went after Winston at that point. So I'm in Florida. I come back from Florida. I'm getting my stuff together really to, to leave New York. And there was a car that 
Khalil used to drive. It was a, a, a Dodge Charger. When I, um, I knew where the stash was at, because most of the cars that these guys driven was a, had stashes in it. And, and this one car, which was my car, that I would leave in New York at times that I would drive, was a car that occasionally Winston or Khalil would drive at times. So when I went and got the car and I checked the car, there was one kilo in the car. So I kind of panicked because I knew they were would be trying to come arrest me at any time. So particularly that day, I was going to drive this car to to Miami. So it with the encrypted BlackBerry, I I sent a message to to Winston. However, he's not answering, um, and I, I didn't understand why. And so I called my driver, Jason, and asked, did he hear from, from Winston? And he was like, no, I haven't heard from him. So I emailed him again, and he answers. And I said, look, man, I, I have one kilo that I found in the car. Come and get it. Like, you can come get it. Get, just give me something for it. So, but he, all of his messages to me were delayed. Unbeknownst to me, they had already arrested Winston. So, when I go to meet Winston, Winston has a Y on. And when he gets in the car, I ask him, I say, man, is everything all right with you? Because I haven't heard from you when I was emailing you. And, um, you know, he, he seemed a little nervous. So I give him the, the kilo that was in the car, and I say, yo, man, give me give me whatever you want. Give it to me. He said he don't have the money right now. So I said, all right, man, I'm leaving about 5 o'clock. If anything, you could just drop it off, or I'll get it another time. And I drive off. He goes his way, I go my way. I go to my house. Unbeknownst to me again, they're preparing a warrant for my arrest. This is the first time now that... This call is from a federal prison. This is the first time now that they actually have me and some drugs. One kilo. I got charged for a thousand kilos. This is one kilo that these people have that I actually put my hand... And I'm literally giving it to this guy, Winston Hammond. So they're preparing a warrant. I'm in my house preparing to leave. I find out that there's no navigation in the car. I walk to 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 um, Radio Shack to buy navigation. On my way back, I see some police in front of my building, and I leave. I call the front desk. They tell me that the police just went up to my, my apartment. At that point, I leave. I get on the run. Where'd you go? Uh, I went. I went to Miami. I went to Miami, and at that point, I started working on to try to leave the country. The the only thing was that my connection to get my papers together it was all in New York. So after about three weeks or a month of hiding in Miami, I come back to New York to get my passport to leave. I had a three-day a plane ticket to leave the country in three days after I got to, to New York. 
my passport would take three days for me to get. During that interval, and those three days of me waiting for them to mail my passport, Tony Martin gets in touch with my son and said it's urgent that he have a conversation with me. And because I, I wasn't doing anything with Tony Martin, <laughs> illegal, I didn't have a problem with getting contact with Tony Martin. However, what I didn't know was that they arrested Tony Martin too because one or two times he must have handled some money for my brother and they arrested him on it. And that was all due to what Khalil was telling me. So they arrested also Tony Martin. So by me answering Tony Martin's email gave them a way to track me. And at that point, I'm arrested on drug charges um, in Manhattan off of Union Square, 14th, 14th Street. I yeah, just want to emphasize, though, that that is the only drug, the only drugs that the, the prosecutors and the DEA agents acquired from me or even heard me have a conversation in regards to any drug. When they played the tape in court of me and Winston Harris, you, the tape was so muffled because what the judge allowed them to do was to translate the, 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 the tape. And what they translated to wasn't what I was hearing on the tape. They said, I said on the tape, there's a bunch of drugs that I got coming in or something to that effect. But the tape is inaudible where they're talking about that I said it in. And the judge allowed them to use this as a guide, the jurors as a guide of translating what was on the tape. And really and truly, even though the judge gave them an instruction, listen, what's evidence is what you hear. What I'm, what the prosecutor is passing out isn't evidence, but it's a way to guide. But when you listen to the tape, it, listen, I, I hope you let you play this this actual drug conversation I have with with, with with Winston, you don't hear none of that. I have a bunch of drugs that I'm about to give you and so on and so forth. But the jury saw that on the paper. You know, that was another thing that prejudiced me um, immensely in that trial. The irony of this is that the government in many ways is very old fashioned as it relates to their record keeping. A lot of things are still done by pen and paper, and their record keeping isn't the most sophisticated in the world. Again, it's the federal government. It doesn't surprise me that they would take surveillance video or audio and transcribe it to fit their narrative. It isn't beyond federal investigators to tailor make evidence to fit the right story. It happens all the time. Was that recording? Was that recording, yes. While I was doing these calls, I have to admit it was hard to keep track of all of this information and all the names. A federal criminal investigation is a wide-ranging thing with lots of moving pieces. And second to that, I had to teach myself how to read court transcripts or understand the myriad of legal terms used by the government or investigators. I take this stuff for granted now. But when I started to formulate ideas and the story of this podcast, I was a novice as it relates to this stuff. 
there was a learning curve. I made a statement the other day to a friend when I was talking about the feds, and I stand by this statement. I think they get away with some of the corruption they get away with because the average citizen just looks at someone like Jimmy, calls him a criminal, and leaves it at that. I know you're smart enough to realize that in the pursuit of justice, if we don't have some truth, then we're just lost. The machine of the federal criminal justice system is just that. It's a machine. It's a business. It's a tool of power. The people inside of it probably feel good and just about themselves. But are they? <laughs>